0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneier Zalman-Newfield. Over the last 20 years, the world's most advanced militaries have invited a small number of military legal professionals into the heart of their targeting operations, spaces which had previously been exclusively for generals and commanders. These professionals, trained and hired to give legal advice on an array of military operations, have become known as war lawyers. In war lawyers, the United States, Israel, and juridical warfare, published by Oxford University Press in 2021, Craig Jones examines the laws of war as applied by military lawyers to aerial targeting operations carried out by the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Israeli military in Gaza. This book shows just how important law and military lawyers have become in the conduct of contemporary warfare and how it is understood. Craig Jones is a lecturer in in political geography, in the School of Geography, Sociology, and Politics at Newcastle University, I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Craig.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's really nice to be with you.
0: Terrific. So, to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
1: Yeah. So, well, I'm a you know I'm an academic geographer through and through. I guess I've got uh, all my degrees are in geography, so I, I don't know anything different and. Um, I did my my PhD at the University of British Columbia, and um, this was a few years ago now. And I became interested just one morning after reading uh, uh, a newspaper in, um, in in the conflict in, in Israel and Palestine, and began reading around it. Um, so that's how I got interested in in this topic, which we'll talk more about. Um, and right now, I'm a lecturer in political geography, like you said, um, here in Newcastle, which is in the north of north of England. Um, and yeah, happy to be here. and um, it's good to be with you thanks for reading the book.
0: Great. So uh, to get started, uh, who is Colonel um, Daniel Reisner, and how does he fit into your discussion of the law and warfare?
1: Okay, so yeah, so just to set the context, the book is you know about the involvement of uh, military legal professionals in in targeting operations. I'm talking about lethal targeting operations, operations that kill kill people um, most of the time. And um, I've done a series of interviews with military lawyers and, and they give legal advice to commanders on who they can kill and who they can't kill uh, in under these scenarios, um, looking, uh, as you've said, in, in Gaza, Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly um, my interviews were with the Israeli and U.S. military. So Daniel Reisner is a, was one of these lawyers. He's an Israeli military lawyer and he happens to have been, um, at least from about the period 2000 to 2008-ish one of the most important and senior military lawyers in the Israeli military. I, I um, use him as a hook uh, in the opening to the book um, because he was involved in very high-level decision-making uh, for the Israeli military, uh, and he plays a crucial role in this story because it was him, along with some others in the Israeli military, who learned from the U.S. experience um, of employing legal advisors in targeting operations. And that's something that he wanted to bring to the Israeli military. Um, the Israeli military wasn't doing that on his watch prior to 2000. The year 2000 is key in, in Israel-Palestine because of um, this historic uh, rise that was called the Second Intifada or, or shake-off, which is a Palestinian popular uprising um, against occupation. And um, he, he wanted to consult military lawyers. And, and he had read U.S. history. He was a keen historian. And um, he learned that the military lawyers in the U.S. had been doing this for a decade or so. Um, and he brought that practice to the Israeli military. Uh, and so in the book, I document a sort of highly dramatized case where he's called in a milit- uh, to the military commander's headquarters who can't make a decision on whether or not to, try to strike a particular target. So they call upstairs and say, hey, Daniel Reisner, can you help us make the decision? Uh, And so he's a a lawyer in the book. He's a key decision maker, and ultimately that's what the book's about. He plays a pretty crucial role.
0: Right, right. I'm thinking for listeners um, uh, who might be familiar with the movie Eye in the Sky, the 2015 uh, movie with Helen Mirren, um, uh, it sort of describes uh, a scene very much like the one you were just describing where there's a bunch of, of of military people in a room together deciding about whether or not they they could or should attack a particular target uh, with uh, uh, unmanned um, uh, a military um, uh, um, uh, airplane and shoot you know a, a rocket or something and kill some target and then they bring in the lawyers to try to help them decide you know whether or not this is technically a legal action to take. Um, and so, uh, the one thing to think about is, um, what countries have these war lawyers?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, for listeners, once you're done listening to this podcast, do go watch the film Eye in the Sky. It's a good one and, and puts, um, you know, puts the dramatization on what the book's about. Um, in terms of the, uh, yeah, how many countries have this, uh, not many, um, the U.S. has led the way historically um, in, in employing military lawyers in targeting operations. Uh, they've been around for a long time. Um, military lawyers and the corps to which they belong, the unit to which they belong, boasted it's the oldest and largest law firm in America. Um, but they, didn't, they haven't done the targeting operations really until the 1990s. Israel followed suit in the 2000s. The UK has been doing something similar, although not as extensively involved. Partly because our military operations aren't as big here in the UK as as our Israel um, Israel's operations in the West Bank of Gaza, um, and Gaza, and similarly the US, you know, um, Iraq, um, Afghanistan, and and well, many other places. Let's just put it that way. Um, and um, other NATO states also have these military lawyers. So by and large, you know, without making too much of a generalization. It is mainly, you know, quote unquote, um, Western um, Western military powers, uh, so NATO, member states, uh, and the US and Israel, uh, who consult these military lawyers regularly. Um, I don't know, and I haven't done research on, for example, whether Russia has these military lawyers, whether China has these military lawyers. One would assume from the extent of bombing in somewhere like Syria, for example, that Assad doesn't have these same military lawyers. Or if he does, then they certainly have different interpretations of international war. Um, And so this is this is certainly not a ubiquitous practice. But in terms of, you know, quote unquote, Western democratic liberal states are increasingly employing this as a practice, something that I think we're going to be seeing more of, um, you know, as the years tick by.
0: Right. And your book focuses uh, almost exclusively on the the lawyers, the role of lawyers in the American and Israeli military. Why does it focus on those two countries in particular?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, na- there's a couple of ways of interpreting it or answering it. Uh, the narrow way is, is um, because, as I've mentioned, um, the U.S. military was the first, Uh, state power to to begin employing these military lawyers in targeting operations uh and uh, israel is the sort of second major power to to begin doing that um so that that's the narrow reason because i was interested in i mean i was i became interested in you know what difference does it make to have a military lawyer give advice on a target or not does it make any difference are they a fig leaf are they do they change operations you know um why do they even exist? It seemed like a bizarre idea to me when I first found out about it. Um and so the question then is, okay, well, who does this and what's the history? And and those those two states emerge as as the sort of biggest players in that field. I think more broadly, uh and sort of more conceptually in a way, um, I think what you're seeing with those two states specifically, the US and Israel, is um Certain interpretations of international law or obligations under uh, international law that, if you like, push the envelope of international law, that push at the edge of what is permissible in international law. And they do that via legal interpretation, via these military lawyers. Uh, and in the post 9 11 era, I think you really see this come to the fore with sort of creative legal interpretation, is to put it one way. You know, there was all the stuff obviously in Guantanamo and the torture and. Uh, and that sort of stuff there's also this rise of targeted killing which is you know that that scenario you referred to with with unmanned aerial vehicles uh, also known as drones which have been striking in in the global borderlands in Yemen and Somalia and, and Iraq Afghanistan many other places and so those two states have a specific form of warfare um a sort of um in some ways an invisible form of warfare that 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 is like a a global extrajudicial killing um, uh, you know, where, whereby they're killing individual terrorists in many different parts of the world. And that requires a legal rationale for doing that. Uh, you can't just do that. You know, you can't just make this stuff up and, and go kill people the other side of the world. Um, you need lawyers in order to do that. And the states that are leading the way in that, in my opinion, I think, and the, the empirical evidence shows that the U.S. and Israel are doing that far more far better or far worse, depending on your view, than, than anyone else.
0: Right. And you sort of touched on this already, but to help uh, to help us understand this a little more, if you could expand on it a little bit, this issue of what really is the role of the war lawyer, specifically, does the involvement of war lawyers actually make the decisions regarding legal targeting operations any more, you know, humane, in, in quotes, you know, or limited in some way, or does it simply... Place a veneer of legality on what is actually morally unjustifiable. And just to to put a fine point on the question, you mentioned uh, just now that these operations are quote invisible, but the, the 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 irony, of course, is that they're never invisible to their targets. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're invisible maybe until they get hit, but you know once a, a rocket or something is is sent through someone's window and a building explodes and kills a bunch of people all the people living there are perfectly aware of the the action that has been taken right that it, they may not know necessarily uh definitively who the uh you know who who sent the rocket you know who is the the perpetrator of this act but they're perfectly aware of what happened to the building you know so I think it raises the question of just, um, in other words, who. It, it, what I'm trying to get at is like who who are we really like even just to expand to 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 go out a drop, uh, a drop more and think about the idea of like top secret, something, these operations are highly secretive, whatever. But of course, they're, who are they top secret from? You know, they're top secret, certainly for, uh, from the population of the country whose military is carrying out these operations, but they're not top secret from the targets who are impacted by these operations. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm a, I'm a geographer, so this is this would be a crucial reading for me. Um, I think that much of global politics, much of global war at the moment, you know, if we're going to get meta about it, is marked by this what you're saying, this geographical separation of where violence takes place. Obvious case, you know, obvious historical cases. When was the last time the U.S. Um, fought a war on its soil? You know, other than Pearl Harbor, other than If you want to construct an act of war, um, 9-11, the fighting is always done elsewhere, which means that, you know, when things are top secret, when things are invisible, they are invisible to populations at home, domestic populations in the US that have become war weary, that are no longer interested in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because of the toll, because we can't win them, because it wasn't an easy victory, just like Vietnam. And we've grown weary of it. And so it's sort of invisibilized to those populations. But like you say, um, it's daily talk in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, in Gaza, in places like federally administered tribal areas in, in Northwest uh, Pakistan, uh, in Yemen. This is daily, you know, daily political problems that people keep on getting blown up from the sky. So there is, you know, what I would call, uh, you know, the, a, a, a political geography here to, to the violence, right? Which is, uh, I think you're absolutely right. That, that's one part of your question. There was another part. Should we, should we come to that as well?
0: Sure, please.
1: So the other part I guess was about, you know, what difference do they make? Um, first thing I want to say about that is these military lawyers, formally speaking, if you go read the texts, if you talk to them, they will say, we are not decision makers. It is not their, within their power. It's not within their professional guidance to make a decision. They are not the ones that say, yes, let's drop the missile. No, let's not drop the missile. That formally speaking is a power that resides with a military commander, with a decision maker within the military. Um, that's formally speaking. That's like this, you know, um, like in the U S there's the separation of power. It's this, um, ideal, uh, ideal, which is very difficult to live up to in practice. Um, and the, I suppose the problem is, and what the book tries to do, um, and here it's a tension rather than something I want to resolve is to say that when, because of the special place that law plays in our society, in the way that we structure uh, social life, and increasingly the way that we structure our, our own militaries, law has a very special place that makes legal advice, that makes the figure of the military lawyer very difficult to ignore or sideline which is to say that a military commander gets lots of advice. He gets advice from his weapon ears, like how big is the bomb we should drop? He gets lots of advice from his intelligence, like where to drop the bomb. He gets lots of advice from um, PR people, like, hey, if we drop this bomb, you know, it's going to blow up on CNN or the BBC. He gets lots of different advice. My argument in the book is that the lawyer's advice, because of law is special, in a problematic way, right? Because law is special, that advice blurs the line between who is the decision maker and who is the advisor, which is to say that legal advice is not just advice. It's not like, hey, I would encourage my child not to eat that second piece of chocolate cake. You know, it is advice that comes with a certain power that that one can't freely ignore, which is not to say that every commander follows every piece of advice. It is to say that it comes with a special power and partly the problem with that special power is the fact that I think it can um, do almost what you suggested there? It can absolve the moral conscience of the actor because they're they're told what they're doing is right by an authoritative figure, by a lawyer, um, and I think that's problematic.
0: Right, right. It, it's interesting. It's almost as if what the way you were describing the status of law in uh, quote unquote you know Western countries, Western. Um, you know enlightenment influenced uh you know countries whatever um it's uh it's almost like the role that religion uh, has had in prior um, eras in, in in Western history and also uh, continuing today in various societies where if something is given uh the the patina of a religious um, uh, belief or religious doctrine; it's considered to be somehow more um, uh, more appropriate to listen to to that uh, you know uh, that guidance than some other kinds of information.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you know what these lawyers talk about really interestingly. And since I published the book, there's been a couple of really interesting accounts that came out um, about this which are really that, um, I mean, in the book I talk a little bit at the end, in the final chapters about um, military lawyers as a kind of chaplain uh, and that military commanders go to these military lawyers, yeah, for advice, for, for, for strategic or practical everyday advice, but one lawyer or a few lawyers actually talked about themselves as giving absolution, right, this moral, religious absolution for the, for want of a better term, for the sins of military violence, right? I'm going to kill people. I might kill innocent women and children and men, and it's a difficult thing psychologically, religiously, spiritually to come to terms with. And the military lawyers, whether the commanders feel like they see them as that or whether they become that, they're certainly not formally that, but they're playing more than a legal role that is actually now, I think, sort of um, quasi-spiritual, I don't know what to call it, quasi-religious, where they're playing this... Um, role of absolution. You know, absolution comes from. I think I don't know my religion, but you know, comes from comes from the Catholic Church of you know giving absolution for the sins in one's life. One goes to to repent the sins and um, is given absolution. That's that's a worrying development. It's a worrying development that blurs lines between between law, ethics, morality, uh, uh, and religion um, in ways in which you know once you elevate human made law to the divine, I think you you've got a serious problem on your hands.
0: Right right but it's interesting again if you think about you know how we're supposedly in the western countries living in a secular age and you think about the the role of the lawyers in the military context how they might be fulfilling or replacing uh, uh what in former times may have been the, a, a a gap that may have been filled by religious functionaries where mm-hmm. religious functionaries would say yes this is a just war they'd tell yeah, you know, European monarch or something. This is a just war, sure. Go ahead, cross the border, kill those other people. God wants it, you know. And now you have lawyers in a secular age uh, coming along with you know uh, um, you know legal clauses or whatever, saying yes, you're permitted to go ahead and do this thing, even though it may appear to you and certainly to other people as you know a truly uh, a heinous thing to do.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, the, I get the broad point here is that you know, um, it's not just about these figures of the military lawyers. It's not like oh, they're overstepping their mark, or they are doing something they shouldn't do, or they're looking for to just give absolution to make people feel better. Um, my problem, you know, the title of the book is the war lawyers. It's about uh, about professional people. The wider problem is that international law allows them to say and do the things that they say and do on a daily basis. And, and you know it's that sort of permissive power and they are in some ways just the vehicles for for that sort of broader uh, permissive power um and i think i think you're right that when you when you get that blurring um they do feel, fulfill that certain function what it also does which is slightly different from the religious or sort of spiritual element um in our you know secular liberal societies it's not okay to um to say that one has a governmental procedure which is relying on some sort of uh, divine um, will. And in, in place of that, you get law um, and law as a lie, as law as, as providing objective answers to uh, serious political or moral questions that you know whereby it's less subjective to ask a lawyer because there's process and protocol. So you have this whole apparatus Targeting is a is a is a technological bureaucratic mechanism which divides a complicated business of killing people into bureaucratic individual tasks, uh, and the lawyers really sort of help that they help um, cover that complicated business that moral and political business in in a proceduralism um, and maybe there's proceduralism to religion too, um, but it's this displacement to procedure to seemingly objective standards. Of you know something like due process and proportionality and necessity. Um, by the way, due process doesn't exist in this sphere. That's um you know that's a way too high a threshold.
0: Yeah. By the way, there's definitely proceduralism in religious uh, context. I I study sociology of religion. But anyway, we'll we'll, yeah. we'll move off of the religious angle uh uh for now. Um uh I'm curious um. We're talking about law and there are these lawyers and there's lawyers in different countries that are fulfilling similar functions. What law, uh, kind of uh, uh, concretely speaking, what law are they interpreting and and analyzing in order to come up with these determinations?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, It's not necessarily easy and straightforward and sometimes it changes. But but, um, the simple answer to the question is that these lawyers are dealing with a sphere of law that has two names. Uh, one is International Humanitarian Law, IHL, and the other one is Laws of Armed Conflict, or sometimes called LOAC, or L-O-A-C. Essentially, that those, those are, that's just literally two, um, two bodies of law, two, two, two names of the same body. You can also shorthand it to the laws of war. So this is a body of law that is often associated with the Geneva Conventions, sometimes also with the Hague Conventions, It is the international law that guides uh, or that governs um, human activities when we go to war. It's different from the the right to go to war in the first place, which is all about the UN Charter and the right of self-defense and those sorts of things that came out of World War II. This is a much older uh, legal uh, paradigm uh, about humanitarian law, um, which is, okay, once humans go to war with each other, what rules should we agree upon to govern the conduct? You know, classic ones are like prisoners of war. We, we shouldn't torture prisoners of war. We should give them conditions. Other ones are certain protections of civilians. Uh, others are care for the wounded and sick. So that's the key body of law. Essentially, the laws of war also gets mixed in sometimes with, um, with domestic law. So U.S. domestic law gets mixed in. Israeli domestic law gets mixed in. National courts interpret some of this stuff that then feeds into military policy. So famously, the Israeli Supreme Court weighs in on a lot of this stuff on, for example, targeted killing. Um, And then also you've got military law on top of that. So there's three different layers, right away from the international, domestic, and then um, what's called the rules of engagement, which are sort of specific military rules, which are like what soldiers can do, when they can fire, what rules do they have to follow? Um, So it's a whole a whole set of laws really, but probably the most important is this, um, international humanitarian law. one,
0: Right. And speaking of the law, you make a point to men, to, to say that the uh, law is indeterminate. What do you mean by that?
1: So, yeah, my thing is, uh, this might be a bit whack for, for some listeners, but, uh, my, my sense is that, you know, the law is, is a, is a, a human made phenomenon and it doesn't have any exterior reality over the, um, interpretations or, or, or our individual interpretations uh, or judges interpretations of it so my sense is that when military lawyers come in to a targeting room and want to make a decision about the legality of something the law is not you know it's not there in a book it's not there on a page waiting to be found as some objective truth in order to say hey yes this is illegal or no it's not illegal one has to do a lot of interpretive work which is nothing to do with interpreting the law you can't just read the geneva conventions and get a simple yes no answer you as listeners on the other end of the fo- on the other end of this you know might have a very different uh, interpretation of hey there's a scenario can we kill these you know um, hamas militants yes or no there could be a 100 different interpretations uh, of that those interpretations require interpretations of everyday realities that have got nothing to do with law such as what is the value of the target um What what is the risk of the civilians next door? How much do we value the life of a school child next door who might be killed? Um, How much you know collateral damage is there going to be by way of buildings and schools? Um, What kind of missiles do we have? Um, Why don't we have a better missile that's more precise? Those things have got absolutely in my mind absolutely nothing to do with the law per se, and yet those concrete realities from sort of everyday life, boring stuff. You know, what's the building made out of? Is it is it wood? Is it going to burn or is it going to fall Um, and not legal questions and yet they weigh so heavily on legal calculations in such a way that you know going back to my scenario it's not just a case of yes or no but you need to interpret the world and you're going to get very different answers to that question so my sense is that law and you know that this is a very practical example but um, more philosophically law law has ambiguities which require interpretation that law has actually no meaning until it's interpreted.
0: Right. Right. Um, and historically speaking, when did war lawyers begin shaping U S military doctrine? Oh, yeah, hey,
1: that's a great question. So they, they've been around, like I said, for, for a long time, for, for a few centuries. Um, and um, my sense is that, you know, I read this account in the second world war um, whereby um, these military lawyers were saying, Hey, you know, we felt, we felt bad because we were so far away from the actual real soldiers that we didn't really do anything. So I think we can say pretty emphatically that, in terms of U.S. military doctrine, they were they were more or less irrelevant in terms of strategic stuff uh, until at least um, you know the Second World War, where, where I really pinpoint in the book as being a pivotal moment is uh, after the Vietnam War. Less so during the Vietnam War, uh, military went to Vietnam um uh, you know in the 1960s and 1970s uh yeah US military lawyers went to uh went to Vietnam in, in the 1960s and 70s but they weren't involved in in targeting at all uh in fact they they, they were really far away but a couple of things happened in, in Vietnam one was um, some war crimes that were committed in 1968 that are known as uh, Me Lai or, or or My Lai depending on how you pronounce it american soldiers went into a village and and, and essentially commit war crimes killing about three or 400 civilians, and um, it was a wake-up call for the U.S. military that it had such a strategic um, cost for them in the wake of it. You know, these war crimes allegations fed into the uh, protest movement back in the United States, the anti-war movement, uh, the famous 1968 protests. um, that, That war crimes have such a sort of strategic cost that actually lawyers, if they brief soldiers on the Geneva Convention on the rules of law, Maybe they won't commit such egregious crimes, and so then it's they emerge on the scene doctrinally and and, and you know a long time with alongside stuff that's happening internationally with with what's known as the um, additional protocols of the Geneva Conventions, another set of laws that come across in the 1977 um, period. Um, you know the U.S. military realizes the strategic value of of sort of avoiding disaster with these military lawyers, so has them come in first, do small things like. Um, train in the instruction of the laws of war. Just teach soldiers, hey, this is the law. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And then, as they become, um, you know, um, more and more useful across the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, the argument is in the book is that that that's a crucial turning point. But that actually, it's really in the post nine eleven era. You know, after the terror attacks of nine eleven in two thousand and one, that they become um, crucial in determining. Um, you know, who lives and who dies, the direction of, of policy and, 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 and what happens really in war.
0: Right. And when did war lawyers in Israel begin playing a significant role?
1: So they began in, um, in, in 2000, uh, which coincided with uh, what I mentioned before, the, um, the start of the uh, Palestinian Second Intifada. And um, well, the, the case in Israel is interesting. There's a whole history of military legal advice in Israel as well. Military lawyers have been around in Israel for, you know, actually before the founding of the Israeli state in, in 1948. Um, they had legal services to, uh, to, uh, to, some, to the Haganah, which is a sort of predecessor uh, group of, of the Israeli state. And um, they've been around, but similarly, similar story. They didn't really do targeting. And um, it wasn't until this Daniel Reisner uh, figure that, that I document in the book realizes that there's an unrealized potential here uh, and he comes on the scene in the 2000s. Um, I suppose what I should also say is that the U.S. military, uh, the Israeli military, for much of um, the second half of the 20th century, is targeting uh, and is killing uh, Palestinians, uh, but is not claiming a legal right to do so. So there's the famous cases is the Munich, uh, you know, after the Munich uh, uh, bombing assassinations, where the Israeli state goes after, captures, or kills those that were responsible for the Munich bombings. Um, Forget the exact date, um, uh, uh, but but they don't ever. Cl- they that's done covertly. It's never done with a legal right to say, "Hey, we have the legal right to target or kill or assassinate." That changes in two thousand with with Daniel Reisner and with the Intifada because uh, what they want to argue is that with the second Intifada, a threshold of violence is uh, is is crossed whereby Palestinians have become so violent that they need new legal procedures, that need war powers. They want to activate this international humanitarian law, get lawyers in, and essentially start you know, targeting killing Palestinians with a legal right and, and with some sort of legal process.
0: Right. And uh, to go back to the American um, context, uh, what role did the interpretation by U.S. lawyers of Iraq's infrastructure as, quote, dual use, uh, play in the U.S. attack on that infrastructure in the first Gulf War in the early 1990s?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, dual use and, and the first Gulf War um, is a whole um, whole thing that I think has been largely unexplored. So what we mean by dual use is um, it's a military term. It's also, a, I guess, a quasi-legal term, which says that um, if a um, place, building, object or thing is being used not only for a civilian purpose, but for a military purpose. It's therefore serving a dual use. So one one key thing would be um, um, electricity production facilities or oil production facilities, whereby, you know, a nation is running, a nation like Iraq is using electricity for its civilian population for, you know, to, to turn on fridges, to keep the lights on at home. Uh, the argument in Iraq in the 1990s was that, um, Saddam Hussein had converted much of Iraq's civilian infrastructure, the electricity, the oil, uh, into military uses, you know, was feeding it, uh, you know, um, oil was going to the tanks uh, and other sort of more complicated uses of this. And the legal reading there by the U.S. military, and I don't necessarily think it's wrong, it is problematic, is, is that because they're using those infrastructures for military purposes under international law they can therefore be targeted even if they also still contain uh, civilian uh, objects or civilian people and so what you do is you start bombing the infrastructure you say it's dual use and then i mean what happened in iraq in 1990 and 1991 is that you um you know you bomb a population uh so thoroughly uh, um on this basis that you reduce its capacity to produce electricity for itself to to sustain itself, uh, and really you um, you know what I argue in the book is that it represents something like uh, the total war doctrine of the Second World War, whereby it was a strategic uh, objective rather than an accident to bomb a whole population, partly because it was
0: called morale
1: bombing or total bombing because you want to bomb people so much that they pressure their own government to concede uh, and sort of give up the war effort. I think actually something like that happened in Iraq in the 1990s, partly under this pretext of dual use.
0: Could you give us a sense of just how extensive and impactful the bomb, the U.S. bombing of Iraq in the early 1990s was?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's difficult to, to communicate how... Um, how impactful it was we are talking i mean so the immediate bombing lasted uh, just 40 days or 41 days i think it was uh, killed around 3000 3500 um, iraqis immediately as a result of the bombing uh, however epidemiologists went back um, uh, and people studied the death toll uh, in the long run because of the all the secondary and tertiary effects of the bombing you know people didn't have access to water um, people didn't have access to refrigeration there was more increases in cases of cholera, people died of cold, all this stuff that was a result of the bombing but wasn't a direct cause, you know, today, tomorrow, and estimated that way in excess of 100,000, even as much as 200,000 people had died uh, as a result of the bombing. Um, You have to bear in mind that what happened in the 1990s was a huge bombing campaign that followed immediately by United Nations and global sanctions on Iraq so that they could not then rebuild the infrastructures which have been destroyed that was a deliberate political strategy it's a strategy which is often framed as non violent you know to just put sanctions on someone is better than than not um the, the, the bombing them uh however when you've already destroyed the infrastructure and they can't rebuild it that is obviously you know you have a huge impact i think actually you know we see something like that uh, i would argue in, in in gaza uh today um uh, and you know that's that has a huge devastating impact. And, um, you know, the infrastructure in some ways, because we reinvaded and bombed Iraq again in 2003, they've been involved in a protracted civil war or transnational war ever since. Rise of ISIS, power vacuum, um, you know, is still actually recovering from the 1991 bombing because it hasn't been allowed to recover.
0: Right. And speaking of Gaza, how does Israel's aerial bombardment of Gaza fit into the larger picture of how Israel deals with the Palestinian population in its midst?
1: Oh, another uh, another great and difficult question. Um, I think you know. I think Gaza is um, is in some senses a crucial part of the question of Palestine in the contemporary period. And in other ways, it's it's a territory that, that set apart. Uh, actually, I think deliberately as a as a. Um, tactic of or, or an Israeli strategy to to separate the territories the, the West Bank uh, from Gaza um I mean some people talk about Gaza as a laboratory a laboratory for um you know Israeli military experiments about uh, Israeli military uh, technologies uh, and I think I think that there's some truth to that um I think ultimately what the situation in Gaza what you're seeing is um intermittent periods of mass aerial bombardment um, followed by um, you know a permanent siege followed by uh, also a sort of regimes of occupation which do much the same as what's happened in Iraq um, although it's still um, you know actively uh, under siege of course uh, so imports are not allowed certain goods are um, banned from. Uh, entering, uh, exports are difficult, the movement of people across borders is difficult. You know, the new project that I'm doing looks at access to healthcare for for those been traumatically wounded in Gaza. And for example, you know, if you're shot or if you've got a bomb wound that's complicated, there's not enough healthcare infrastructures in Gaza to care for that. And then Israel won't always let them out um, to to cross borders in order to access their healthcare. So I think Gaza is in some ways the most extreme form of... um, extreme form of Israeli policy on on the question of Palestine. Um, And, well, there's more I could say about it, but I'll leave it there, I think.
0: Right. And and, um, you talk about the difference between deliberate and dynamic targeting. What is the difference, and how does this relate to war lawyers?
1: Yeah, okay. So deliberate and dynamic targeting is um, basically one. So deliberate is, is planned targeting, so it's where you know got a target in advance and you know you want to strike it let's say it might it might be a building it might be a bridge or a weapons depot where you've got some intelligence in advance you know and then a few weeks down the line or a few days down the line uh, you want to target that Um, and then the dynamic target is one where um, you know when the pilot takes off uh, on his or her flight um, you don't necessarily know what they're going to target. Maybe something emerges during a battle, like you see a, you know, a quote-unquote terrorist emerge from a building, get in his or her car, and drive down the street. That would be a dynamic target because it emerges in real time. So the difference there is is just about, you know, is it planned? Is there a planned component to it, or is it is it live? Uh, often military operations these days blur the two. Um, and, um, you know, increasingly what happens in, in, in both Gaza and and major theaters of war such as um, such as Iraq uh, and uh, well, Syria as well you know with regards to to Russia is that in the first days and weeks actually Israel has done this for some time and is really good at doing it all the way back in, in, in into the 1967 war you take out the key strategic sites the airports uh, the key infrastructures the the major military infrastructures. The plan targets in the first few days of the operation to render the the enemy sort of weak. And then in the follow-up period, you then react to what the enemy does uh, and you follow up with these dynamic strikes. Obviously, as you can imagine with lawyers, it's like a pretty difficult situation because um, the live stuff happens around the clock. So you need 24-7 legal advice. Um, It happens quickly. So you get commanders that, you know, get upset or that need to make a decision right now. Lawyers want more detail. They want more, um, you know, fidelity of information, um, more time. And they don't have time. It's about that obviously presents a pretty serious situation for how do you give legal advice to someone who requires an answer in like 10 seconds or one minute? Right,
0: right, right. That's really interesting. And I mean, I think it, 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 it challenges the very idea of a, deliberative legal process if you need it the answers immediately uh you know is that really a kind of deliberative legal process or or some other creature
1: yeah exactly i mean the the, the thing is right is that we we come to associate law and you know whether that's because we're watching tv and we're watching these prolonged or protracted legal trials uh as as a deliberative process it's something that takes time you know if, if you've ever done jury service it takes a long time to even, you know, be a juror on, on, a, on a on a, jury. Um, things take time. law is notoriously small. For victims, you know, the, the, the legal procedure is drawn out, often annoyingly so. Here we have something like the opposite case where, you know, it's seconds and minutes. There's no time for a judge to come in, look at balance of evidence. Certainly there's not a sort of prosecution. There's no defence. So that whole sort of criminal paradigm that we might, you know, automatically think of when we think about legal procedure just doesn't apply it's such a different procedure and not therefore saying it's not law or it's not right um, or we should have that criminal paradigm because then you know well no war is going to get done if that's the case I mean you know I'm absolutely pro that but that's a whole other story um so I'm not saying that it's realistic to, to have that but it is at least to say that it's that it's problematic and I think that's what's difficult because when we impute such power to law, and The legal word almost, you know, imply that it's some sort of magical force, and then we look at actually how sort of arbitrary and quick, and and you know, it might be a, I mean, in one case that I that I've read about recently, since the book was published, legal advice was a table tennis bat in, in a guy's hand in the operation room, and, and with one side red and one side green, and you know, he needed to turn it over and when it went green, that was yes. I mean, if that's what legal process and procedures come to. Again, that's not a criticism of that process, but that's a, we're reducing huge, huge, huge problems about law morality, killing, killing other people, you know, because, because the table turns back, goes up and it's green.
0: Right, right, definitely. And it's interesting to think like you mentioned in the, in the start of our conversation that the, the law has a particular, almost revered status in Western society and culture and It's interesting to think about, you know, how it got that status and to what extent is that status dependent on people's sense that the law is a, quote unquote, objective in some way, but also deliberative and thoughtful and analytical. And it's because of these qualities or the assumption that these qualities exist in the law that uh, uh possibly the law has the kind of uh you know, very high status that it does in western societies and that if this kind of um uh, uh legal processes where people are are, are making split second decisions and and uh, uh, and signaling it by the flip of a of a paddle that maybe this will uh, uh, erode or, or or corrupt the very status of law in these societies
1: mm. I think that's right. I mean, I can't answer the question of, you know, where it's come from. It's obviously a very historical uh, contingent thing. I suppose, you know, I, we can look to it for, through completely other examples um, that have nothing to do, you know, with my book or this discussion, such as the role, for example, of law in the resolution of sexual violence or sexual assault with, for example, the Me Too movement, whereby victims of sexual assault have become so thoroughly disillusioned with the legal process because it systematically failed them. I mean, arguably systematically failed them in the U S case right up to the Supreme court, because we have a potential, um, you know, uh, sexual assailant in, in the Supreme court. Um, that
0: P- one, possibly more than one,
1: possibly more than one. Well, okay. Documented,
0: yeah. documented more than one.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, at least two. <laughs> right. Well, there we go. Uh, you know, in the highest power and, um, so, so what happens then to that law and legal system when it, it, it fails to function for those who it's designed to protect? They lose faith in it, um, and then we talk about the law as something which, which you know, is, is no longer useful to particularly vulnerable communities. And therefore, you know, we go to other languages. We go to, towards social justice or we take to the streets. Uh, and you know, we find Me Too as a movement, as a social movement that has sometimes a language of law um, and you know, um, Harvey Weinstein and, and whatnot go through a court and legal process. Um, some do, some don't, but there's much extra legal work to be done, I suppose. And so, I don't know, you transfer that back to law or uh, to military context. And I'm not sure. I mean, in some ways, obviously, I'm, I'm pretty cynical about what's happened to the process of law in military spaces so much so that I don't think it serves the people who it should serve. I guess, is a wider question of whether the law, the international law, was designed to ever serve the victims of military violence, not its perpetrators, which is probably where I'd stand on the issue.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, I think your book, I think our, our discussion of your book, just highlights how uh, uh, fascinating your book is and how complex the issues it grapples with. Uh, we could, you know, talk for for you know endlessly about all sorts of of related topics, and I think it is interesting to think about um, sort of why. The law and the war lawyers were introduced into the military, as you said, because of the status of the law in these societies, and how uh, potentially the very process of incorporating lawyers in such a formalized and 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 um, uh, you know bureaucratized uh, 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 a procedural way could actually diminish the status of law, thus making it useless to have lawyers in the military serving this function
1: yeah yeah absolutely you know i want to you know say something here that um that that sometimes goes against my own political position but military lawyers and militaries aren't the only ones that have sort of you know brought law into disrepute in this regard so i mean any time Anytime civilians are killed in modern war, we see this almost daily in global news, um, you know, in the various contexts that, that our listeners are listening to. Um, uh, and as, you know, some civilians die almost invariably, various different constituents from the international community, sometimes the UN, uh, often, you know, human rights organizations and human rights uh, people on, on Twitter and in and in media will say it's a war crime, uh, civilians were killed, it is a war crime. Uh, that, that is an incorrect legal uh, formulation most of the time um, because it's not it's not a crime to kill civilians. It's a crime to kill civilians in certain ways. And so what, what, what the militaries uh, get frustrated with is this sort of uh, misusing of the law um, to say, you know, like to, ha- to, to hold militaries to a higher threshold to say that, like, even if you killed one civilian, now we're going to accuse you of a war crime. Um, I th- like I say, I think that's an incorrect legal procedure. Uh, an incorrect legal reading, um, but but what they're doing when they do that, when Human Rights Watch do that, when Amnesty International do that, you know, I'm, I'm broadly sympathetic, but they are um, they are one, they are sort of I think misrepresenting law um, for what it says, uh, but two, and more importantly, they are resorting to the very language of law that the military uses. And that the military can come back with and say, well, hang on a minute, it says here that, you know, as long as you take into account X, Y and Z, you can kill civilians. So it's just the wrong language to use. And it it, it results in a sort of mutual erosion from the military side and from the humanitarian side. Um, and this is, um, we don't have to get into it, but this is what's now called lawfare. Uh, the use of law as a weapon of war It's become, law has just become irredeemably strategic. If you don't like what someone's doing, just call them a war criminal. Say they've killed civilians. And, and you know, for the most part, publics don't really understand the nuances of law. So what counts as law is what what gets counted or what gets said as a war criminal. And that's the poverty of international law and it's a sort of, you know, it's I don't think it's a useful discussion.
0: Right, right. I think that again, this <laughs> brings out that like you said, when when whether it's Amnesty International or or, or certainly many uh, political activists, people who are concerned about social justice, when they take to the streets or when they clamor against a particular uh, uh, military action and say that it's, it's illegal or if this goes against the law, what they really mean is that it's unjust, that the way that they understand the world, the way that they understand morality about uh, justice, they feel that this action violates basic concepts of justice and of morality. And they associate justice and morality with formal legal procedures. But what you're saying, and I think I, I also agree with this, I think that, that that association itself may be faulty. That that when we think about um, uh, the law, especially when it pertains to military actions and, and warfare, uh, the law may not necessarily or certainly may not intrinsically be moral or just. It's simply a, a, a set of, of, of guidelines to execute warfare. And if you follow those guidelines, then you're technically uh, uh, um, uh, following the law. I mean, there's a um, a meme on Facebook that goes around a lot that that highlights this point that it says that, you know, the Nazis that uh, uh, when the Nazis killed Jews, they were, Within the bounds of the law, and when Germans or others tried to resist this uh, genocide, they were acting illegally. And the same thing with uh, the the uh, um, uh, the mistreatment of black people in the American uh, uh, legal uh, American history and uh, during the Jim Crow era, where those who were uh, uh, were were um, Um, uh, mistreating or denigrating, Black people were following the law, and those who were fighting against that uh, mistreatment were actually breaking the law. So it just highlights that the law is not necessarily intrinsically just or moral.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at best, depending on what spheres or or areas of political life we're looking at, law has at best a tangential relationship to justice uh, and morality. Um, I think in the case of, you know, these war lawyers things, it, it was never even conceived of uh, as trying to be about um, something like justice or something like uh, what we often associate with law. Um, I mean, by and large, it was, a, was first conceived of as a way of um, protecting soldiers, you know, protecting them when they got wounded and sick. And then it became uh, a strategic calculation about, um, you know, protecting civilians in war um, it wasn't really about justice. Even the protecting civilians in war had a strategic element. It doesn't make any sense to kill civilians in war. Um, It wasn't necessarily, oh, because it's nice and fluffy and justice to not kill civilians. Um, it had a counterproductive effect. You know, you kill civilians like you do in Vietnam and that population turns against you. It happens the world over. The history of warfare is is, is that, that actually it's, uh, you know, a strategic cost. So, yeah, these things that, you know, I mean, Again, depends on what sphere we're talking about, um, I, I wouldn't. My book is fairly cynical of the role that law plays in particular ways, but that's because it's been taken up in particular ways by particular institutes or powers. I think law can be, uh, you know, a, a hugely uh, powerful force for good. Um, you know, uh, much work has been done, um, certainly in the twentieth century. Uh, you know, I'm thinking particularly of the civil rights movement the human rights movement more broadly, not that those movements don't come without costs um, to, to, to advance causes, particularly of marginalized people. So I wouldn't wouldn't be willing to throw the whole law out or whole of international law out. But certainly, um, along with others, people like Samuel Moyne, a Yale historian, are talking about this at the moment. Um, we really need to examine the costs of what happens when we talk about things in a legal register.
0: Right. Well, as you said, there's so much more to discuss about this topic, uh, but we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I uh, hope listeners enjoy it too.
0: Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.